0: Good to see you. Happy New Year. Year. Okay. No one's excited about 2024. (laughs) That was the most depressing. It was like, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I guess. I get it, you guys. I get it. Um, But I'm excited. And, you know, I'm going to have a good time (laughs) right now. I don't know if you are, but I'm going to. So there you go. Um, Let me show you an image. This is a photograph of Stanford Memorial Chapel just up the road, this beautiful uh, chapel at Stanford University. And sadly, it's used sort of sparingly these days. It's mostly sort of a a beautiful piece of architecture for people to enjoy rather than a place of worship. Um, Back in 2011, October of 2011, this chapel was full of Um, dignitaries and celebrities from all over the world, people like Bill Clinton and Bill Gates and Bono of U2 and so many others, filled Stanford Memorial Chapel. And they had all gathered to celebrate the life and grieve the loss of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, which is also just right up the road. Now, these people had gathered because Jobs, who really is a Silicon Valley and global icon, I mean, every single one of us in this, not not all of us, most of us in this room, some of you guys have like Google phones or whatever, but most of us in this room, (laughs) right, we carry the influence of this man, whatever you think about him or don't think about him. And all of these people had gathered. And it's really interesting, on the way in, To this memorial service, every attendee received a small brown box. And you can imagine, this is Steve Jobs' memorial, so it's like, oh my goodness, what is in here? Is this an unreleased version of the latest iPhone? (laughs) Is this a lifetime subscription of the yet-to-be-released Apple TV? What is in here, right? And uh, there's all this anticipation, and after the memorial service, there's a gathering, and people start opening up these small brown boxes, and in it is nothing to do with technology. Instead, every attendee opened their small brown box, and they found a small book. It was this book. I'll show you the image. It was a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi by a 20th century spiritual guru named Paramahansa Yogananda. Super obscure, very strange. Steve Jobs' biographer, Walter Isaacson, he says that Jobs first read this book, which had been published in 1946. Jobs first read the book as a teenager. He then spent some time in India, where Yogananda was from, And then he had read this book since his teenage years. He had read this book every single year. Every single year until his final year of life. Now, Paramahansa Yogananda was a yogi and a spiritual guru. He founded an organization called the Self-Realization Fellowship. He taught that all of life's answers were to be found in one's self. And this book and its message deeply shaped the life of Steve Jobs. It was Jobs' final gift to the world. After all that Steve Jobs had done, all that he had created, all of the ways in which he had truly shaped the cultural moment, the last gift he wanted to leave was this random, strange obscure book by a spiritual guru published in 1946. A book that is all about finding fulfillment and enlightenment and answers to life's questions by looking within yourself. That was Steve Jobs' final gift. You see the influence of this book on Jobs' life all over the place. Let me just give you one quote that he gave in 2005 in an interview. Steve Jobs said, don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. Follow your heart. That is the mantra of our day. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary And so the man who most indelibly shaped modern technology and arguably the man who most indelibly shaped the modern world leaves behind an obscure book about finding all the answers within yourself as his final gift to the people most important to him. And why do I share this with you? This is not a critique of Steve Jobs. I am reading my teaching notes right now on an iPad, and in my back pocket is an iPhone, and in my office right across the way is a MacBook Pro. Like I am, thank you, Steve Jobs, right? This is not a critique of Steve Jobs. My point is, books change people's lives. And not only can books change people's lives, through those lives, books can change the world. Would Steve Jobs had had, would he have had the sort of intuition and creativity and drive to be relentless in his pursuit of what he considered to be almost perfection? Like, would he have had that had he not been so deeply influenced by a book that told him all the answers are within? One could argue that we'd have a very different world were it not for Steve Jobs falling in love with this obscure book by an Indian spiritual guru from 1946. And so even strange, obscure books can change lives and they can change the world. This is one of the reasons why for the last couple of years, every single year, early in the year, we have taken time to do this one-off teaching that we are all participating in today that we call Eat This Book. Eat This Book. And you'll, if you're new to, to us, you'll know why we call it this uh, in a moment. The Bible is a strange and obscure book. It's not just a book, it's a library of books, a library of 66 books. And to many people in the world today, it is not only strange and obscure, this library of books, many people would consider it barbaric and archaic and outdated and unnecessary. Some would even say that it is harmful. Here's the thing about the Bible, This incredible book, it's not about your truth or self-realization or actualization or finding the answers within yourself. The Bible's claim is that itself, itself, the Bible itself proclaims the truth. That all of the answers to life's questions are found in the story that it tells, the story of a God who loves us and sent his son to give us hope and life and meaning and purpose in this life and in the next. In fact, this is what the Bible says about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed. It's the very breath of God. The Bible is the very breath of God. That's at least what it claims about itself. Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Or in Isaiah 55, God himself says, My word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. What about the early church fathers, the people who gave rise to the Christian movement? What did they say? Athanasius, fourth century early church father, said the holy scriptures given by inspiration of God are of themselves sufficient toward the discovery of truth. So again, not discovering your truth, but that the holy scriptures are they themselves are sufficient for the discovery of truth. Or Cyril of Jerusalem. The security and preservation of our faith are not supported by ingenuity of speech, but by the proofs of the divine scriptures. Can I just translate this to you? What you believe and know about Jesus should not primarily be driven by ingenuity of speech. In other words, people who stand up on stages and talk eloquently for 35 minutes like this, this is all supplemental. What I am doing here is supplemental. You should not believe what I say just because I said it. If you do, thank you for the immense trust, but you shouldn't. What Cyril of Jerusalem, this beautiful early church father is saying, is like the Bible itself will reveal to you truth. It will preserve your faith. And all of the teaching, all the preaching, this is supplemental to what the scriptures might say. Now, maybe you're here and you're like, okay, whatever, that's nice, I'm not buying it. I understand, I get it. Even if you are not a Christian, even if you are not a religious person, even if you actually believe that the Bible is old, outdated, archaic, barbaric, unnecessary, even if you believe that, let's just talk about this for a moment. The New York Times bestseller for like almost its entirety, very early on actually, every year, they would list the Bible on the New York Times bestseller list. Did you know this? Very early on when the New York Times first started creating an annual, the books that have sold the most this year. And very early on, they would list the Bible. And then a few years in, they just eliminated the Bible because it became boring. Every single year, the Bible was far and away the best-selling book. It was like, why are we just, we're just repeating ourselves. Everybody gets it. Everyone buys the Bible all the time, every year. Far and away, the Bible is the best-selling book in human history. It's not even close to this very day. Every year, more people purchase Bibles than any other book. Second place is not even close. So, even if you don't think any of this is true, and if that's you, man, I get it. And we are thrilled you're here. I'm like so grateful that you're even willing to explore the possibility of this whole Jesus thing. But even if you don't buy it, here's the deal it is worth your time. I mean, it is the best selling book in human history. Let me show you this next chart. This is about like the reliability of the scriptures. And even if you don't believe any of it is real, here's the thing. Um, There are more ancient manuscripts of the, uh, the New Testament than any other manuscript of any other book in human history. Just give you an example. 1,800 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. Remember in high school, you had to read Homer's Iliad or at least parts of it or you were supposed to and you didn't, you just read, you know, like the Cliff Notes version or whatever. Today, kids would just ask, chat, GPT, write me a paper on Homer's Iliad or whatever. Okay, so you remember that, right? It's like this iconic, you have to read Homer's Iliad. It's a piece of history, whatever. 1,800 manuscripts. In comparison, more than 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament, the Greek New Testament. Here's another point. I'll show you this next image. And some of you have seen this image before. We've shown it here before. Do you know what this image is? This image from left to right is every book of the Bible. And every single colored line, the rainbow you see, is when the Bible either quotes itself or references itself. Remember, the Bible is a library of 66 ancient books. I just want you to visually understand the exquisite brilliance of the Bible. Even if none of it is true, even if all of it is fantasy, there is not another book or library of books on the planet, not even close, that can do this the sort of beautiful literary arcs and the ways in which this library of books written in two ancient languages with a sprinkling of a third dead language in between across 1,200 years amongst a variety of people and a variety of stories, these books talk to each other in this way. There is no... Like there's no other work of literature that comes even close to this. So even if you do not believe that the Bible is God's divine word or whatever, it is undoubtedly the most exquisite literary text in history, and it deserves your attention. I would suggest it deserves reading. Now, for Christians, The Bible is vital. It is the divinely inspired word of God spoken for us to lead us in the way of truth and love down the path toward God's glory and our good. And we do not worship the Bible. We worship the God whose story the Bible tells. But if we worship that God, does it not does it not make sense to know his story, to know his character? And what I'm talking about here is not intellectual assent. I'm not talking about reading the Bible to be better informed or to be smarter or, or um, more eloquent or whatever. We're talking about transformation. Um, the New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, he says this, that God did not give the Bible So, we could master him or it. God gave the Bible so that we could live it, so we could be mastered by it. The moment we think we've mastered it, we have failed to be readers of the Bible. So, the question how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we invite God to transform us, to master us through his story? Um, 600 years before the birth of Christ, there was a man named Ezekiel, and he's a prophet, and he has this absolutely ecstatic, strange vision of heaven. And he is called in this vision, he is called by God to speak on God's behalf to his people. But this is how God calls him, Ezekiel chapter 2, 9 to chapter 3, 3. Then I looked, Ezekiel says, then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, And in it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. And on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So Ezekiel says, I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. What a strange vision. This is what three-year-olds do, right? (laughs) They see a book and they're like, everything, maybe three's too old, like one-year-olds, you know what I mean? When they're going through the teething phase or whatever, It's like everything they see is food. It all goes in their mouth. But like books are not for eating. And yet this vision gives us a picture of what God's story is intended to do. We are intended not just to know it, but to consume it in order to be consumed by it. So what does that mean? It means that the word of God is most powerful and effective and transformative when it is in us. Not just when we know it, but when it is actually in us. So a few thoughts on what that might possibly mean from the scriptures themselves. First, the word of God is bread. It's bread. Jesus himself says so. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's tempted by the great enemy of God. And what does it say? After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, was hungry. Which is like understatement of the year, right? It's like such a funny line. He didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And guess what? He was hungry. Um, Uh, Like a couple months ago, I um, I just I am so bad about going to the dentist, and I so I went to the dentist and had all this checkup. Long story short, they were basically like, "Hey man, your teeth are like they're like way overdue for some things." And also, did you ever get your wisdom teeth pulled out? I was like, no. And he's like, of course not. Like, he knew that. He had the x-rays. You know, why ask me? You know I didn't. Um, Anyways, long story short, the dentist sends me to an orthodontist. Long story short, they're like, hey, you should pull your wisdom teeth out. They're like crowding your teeth, your jaw is shifting, all of this stuff. So I go, and I have this consultation, and they basically, they say to me, listen, we've got to take out all four wisdom teeth, and you have a molar that one of your wisdom teeth has been slowly pushing up against for decades and that molar is dead. We need to take that out too. So basically they're like, we need to take out 20% of your teeth. You're just going to be a toothless man. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, let's do it. And then they tell me, Listen, most people will do like two and two. So our recommendation, why don't you come, take out two wisdom teeth and then come back in you know, several months and take out the other. And I'm, kind, I'm like an Enneagram three over, I wanna be an overachiever. I'm like, no, doc, let's do all five. They're like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm not coming back here a second time. So I go and I, you guys, I just really, really overestimated my own manhood. I was like, take out all five. I got this. They took it all out. And I'm just, I'm not, I'm usually a planner, but I did not plan well. I show up there and they're like, hey, did you drive yourself here? And I was like, yes. They're like, we told you, you cannot drive yourself. You can't, you're not going to be able to drive home. I'm like, really? How bad will it really be? They're like, we're not pulling your teeth until you figure out a ride home. So I call my mom because Jenny was, you know, like working. I call my mom. I'm like, hey, can you pick me up? I don't think you'll need to. But can you? They're making me. So anyways, I go, I pull out five teeth, and you guys, they were right. It was the worst thing ever. Why did I do it? And I couldn't eat. They told me it'd be like 24 hours, and then I could slowly eat like softer foods. That was not true for me. I literally, I lived off water and soup for like three or four days, and the hunger, right? Like the depth of hunger, And what Jesus is saying here is in the midst of a physical realization of a a universal spiritual need. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter, the, the great enemy of God, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, came to him, came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God is bread. Just as actual literal bread can fill our stomachs, the word of God has the ability to fill the hunger of the soul. So I want to ask you, Maybe you enter into 2024. I mean, I heard it in your voice when I got up here 20 minutes ago and said, happy new year. And all of you like grumbled, happy new year. Like I felt it. You are tired. Not all of you, but many of you. Me too. I get it. And often what we will do is we will tell ourselves the way to recover from this weariness is leisure. And that is true. Leisure is necessary. Rest, Sabbath, We've talked about all of these things here before. But maybe there is also a hunger in your soul that doesn't need leisure, but needs bread. The bread of the word. Maybe there is a lack and a weariness that comes from the fact that your soul is malnourished. And maybe the word of God is one of the ways in which you nourish it. The word of God is also a lamp. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Um, As a pastor, I've had the great honor of being uh, at the bedside of many people over the last 20 years who are in their final moments of life on this side of eternity. And I've told stories like this before. Very early on, in my early twenties, um, I remember I was 24. I was 24 years old. I was a youth pastor. The first time I was ever called to go visit um, someone who was on their deathbed, and I remember driving to visit. Um, Jack, and uh, everything in me was like, okay, you gotta, you gotta like say this and say that, and bring him comfort through your words. I'm just like, I was at Fuller Seminary at the time. I'm just like going through my entire catalog of seminary learning. Like, what's the most, you know, like compelling sort of thing I've read about whatever comfort or peace. Or I'm just going through the whole thing, and I walk into the room totally prepared to essentially preach this man to death, literal death. You know? And so I, lay, I sit by him and I just go. I'm like, I'm just like, hey, you know, as you enter, I just start talking. And this old, wise man, breathing his final breaths, or at least in his final days, he looks at me with this like, this weak smile and he puts his finger to his mouth and he goes, shh. <laughs> it's <a> true story. <laughs> I'm like, oh. And then he says to me, he says, read me the Psalms. This was my first time at the, at, in the final moments of someone's life. And, and it was the best lesson I could possibly have learned. I realized, like, this man doesn't, my words are not the lamp lighting the path to eternity. God's words are. And so I sat and I just read him the Psalms. And that's all I do now. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't enter those spaces thinking I'm going to say X, Y, and Z. It's just like, man, sit and first offer the gift of my presence. That's it. And then if there are words to speak, God's words, not mine. Because even in the small deaths we face in our everyday lives, maybe not a literal death, but the death of a dream, the death of a relationship, In the darkness of our lives, God's word is a lamp. It can light the way forward. And so maybe you enter 2024 uncertain. Maybe the future looks dark to you. May God's word be a lamp. And remember, lamps are not flashlights. What we want God to do is give us a flashlight so we can flash ahead to June or September. But God doesn't give us flashlights. He gives us a lamp. And what does a lamp do? It only lights a few steps ahead. You only see more and more as you take steps of faith. And that's God's word. God's word is also a sword. Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. This is what Jesus did in the wilderness. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And Jesus in the wilderness is tempted three times. If you're the son of God, then do this. And three times he responds, it is written, it is written, it is written. Maybe you enter 2024 feeling attacked emotionally, mentally, whatever it might be. These whispers and these lies of the enemy telling you that you're not enough or that you can't or on and on. And maybe what you need is the word of God to affirm truth in you. Maybe you need the word of God to be a sword, to thwart off the work of the enemy. The word of God is also a scalpel. Hebrews chapter four, for the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I I say this um, almost every year, and sadly, it feels necessary every year. So I'm going to say it again. There is this destructive thing happening in culture today where people weaponize the Bible to protect or promote self-interests and to attack any and all who disagree. We see this in politics. We see this in a number of cultural sort of um, tensions that we face. But here's the thing. The the scriptures are a scalpel and the most uncomfortable cutting work they do isn't out there on them. It's right here in me. Scripture wants to do surgery on you. Not on culture, not on them, not on the person who voted for the candidate you didn't vote for. Scripture wants to do surgery on you. So... Let me just say this very clearly at the risk of offending some. Stop weaponizing the Bible to cut down other people. Let the Bible cut into you. I read this beautiful quote from a book by Paul Tripp recently. And he basically says, like, people use the Bible on Twitter like a weapon. But here's the thing. If the Bible is ever expressed, if the words of God are ever expressed in anything other than love and compassion and generosity and kindness and grace and truth, if it ever comes across in a way that is not reflective of the the character and personality of God himself, Jesus himself, then it's not really the Bible that you are espousing, it's like your own twisted sort of weird version of what you want it to be to serve and promote your self-interest. So the Bible is a scalpel. Let it do work on you. And finally, we are transformed by the word, not just, again, not for intellectual assent, not just so that we can know more, but so that we might participate in the world. Second um, Timothy chapter three, famous verse that we read earlier. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, so that what? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, to do good work in the world. We don't read the Bible and study the scriptures just so we can know more. We read the Bible and study the scriptures to become more and, in essence, to do more out of who we are becoming. N.T. Wright says that the Bible is there to enable God's people to be equipped to do God's work in God's world. It's a beautiful way of thinking about how you engage the scriptures. Are you doing God's work in God's world? That is the baseline. Everything else, you're just reading So a couple of thoughts, practical thoughts, invitations. Um, For those of us in the room who maybe have never read the Bible, uh, a couple of invitations. Maybe try beginning your day by reading one Psalm. I mean, it'll take you, in some cases, it'll take you a matter of seconds And some psalms are really long, and maybe you need to break those up, but just try beginning your day reading one psalm. This is how I begin my day. It's a it's a ritual for me, a spiritual practice. I make my coffee, and as the coffee is pouring over, I meditate on the psalms. Or maybe try ending your day by reading through the gospels. Just center yourself on the Jesus story. A lot of times people have never read the Bible and they're like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I've never read the Bible, and I'm going to do it. Genesis 1, 1. And I'm just not going to stop till I get to the end of Revelation. You guys, that is like never having run in your life and then like signing up for a marathon. Don't do that. You will hurt yourself. Don't, right? Just start by reading one psalm a day. Just meditate on it. Let it speak to you. Or read the Jesus stories. And here's the key, read deeply, not quickly. Read for quality, not quantity. This is not a race, right? You don't get a bigger medal or whatever for finishing first. This is about God's story finding its way into you. Now, for those of us who maybe read the Bible sporadically or inconsistently, here's an invitation. Maybe find 15 to 30 minutes on your daily calendar. Can you carve out a a longer extended period of time? 15 minutes to half an hour on your daily calendar and just commit to reading for that length of time every single day and just see what that does to you. If you don't know where to start, again, begin in the Gospels. Start with the story of Jesus. And again, read deeply, not quickly. And then finally, there are some of us who wanna jump in head first and we wanna try to read the whole thing. Right, like, like we're like, you know what? I do read the Bible. I, I, I. It's kind of sporadic, but sometimes it's consistent. I want to commit this year. Here. So here's my invitation. If that is you, you want to just jump in head first. We've got a number of people, dozens and dozens of people, every year here at our church who read the entire Bible together, and that is the key. Don't do it alone. It's almost impossible to do alone. Um, so we have something here called Discover the Bible, which are small cohorts that get together every quarter, but um, using our app and other things, they stay connected with each other and you just do a Bible in a year reading plan. Listen, you guys, this is not for everybody, but it might be for you. And so if you are interested, if you've never done that before, maybe you've been following Jesus for decades, but you've never read the entire Bible, um, don't do it alone. This is the invitation. Jump in to a Discover the Bible cohort, and you can find out more about that at our Next Steps table. Um, Also, we try to supplement this cohort, but we try to supplement Bible reading in our church throughout. So February 20th, we have one of our quarterly lectures. Um, Our friend Dave Tisch, one of our teaching pastors, he'll be doing a Bible lecture. Lecture on the book of Revelation, which um, is one of the most confusing books in the Bible, uh, but also one of the most profound and beautiful. So if you're interested, join us for that. Um, I'm going to invite Chris and the team to come back up. We're going to sing and respond here in a moment. I know today was really practical, sort of like, but we just felt like, man, start the year. Let's just, uh, next week we're starting this really important series. It's the vision and the future of our church, but today we just wanted to start really practical. So, we're going to sing and respond, but wherever you're at on that spectrum of like engagement with the scriptures, even if you don't believe it is the divinely inspired word of God, man, it is the best-selling book of all time, and um, it is one of it, not one of, it is the most exquisite work of literature, I believe, in history. So it demands your attention. It demands your time. That's what I believe. Let me close with this story. I wanna show you an image of a man. This is a man named Tinker Hatfield. Some of you know who this is, most of you don't. In the early 80s, Tinker Hatfield was an architect. And one day he saw um, this contest by the shoe company, Nike. Nike. And at the time, it's really important to know, at the time, Nike was really struggling. They were not the behemoth that they are today. Stocks were down 50%. The future of the company was really uncertain. So what Nike did was they did this open invitation to any designer uh, to enter a Nike shoe design contest. So Tinker Hatfield, who is an architect, not a shoe designer, Tinker Hatfield enters the contest. And he's sitting there trying to think of a cool shoe design for Nike. And then it comes to him. Um, Recently, he had been in Paris, and he had visited this building called the Centre Pompidou. I've actually, Jenny and I have been to this building. And what's really interesting about the Centre Pompidou, it is well known in Paris because it is an inside-out building. In other words, the structural and mechanical system of the building is exposed. You can see it in the photograph. And Tinker Hatfield thought to himself, that building, the center Pompidou, it's showing all of its insides, all of itself. It's vulnerable to the city of Paris. And then he thought, why not do that with a shoe? And so he began working. And then Tinker Hatfield, with the center Pompidou in mind, this building that exposes itself to the city, he designs this shoe, the Nike Air Max one. And he is the first person to design the clear air pocket on the bottom of the sole, which is iconic now. I'm wearing Nikes right now that have this. Thank you, Tinker Hatfield and Steve Jobs, right? Like that, that's it, that, that's, that's today's teaching. It's just these cultural icons, Nike, Apple, and the Bible. Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike, he has publicly said that Tinker Hatfield saved Nike. Now I share that entire story with you because of this quote. Hatfield said this about this story, about how he thought about the center Pompidou and designed the Nike Air Max One. He said, creativity is the function of the library in your head. He didn't start with a, a blank slate. He didn't start with a white sheet of paper. Tinker Hatfield had an entire library of creativity. Things he'd seen, experiences he'd had, other things he had designed, things that inspired him and moved him. The library in our head can do much more than create a great shoe or save a company. The library in our head and in our heart can nourish us. It can lead and guide us, protect us, and reveal things about us. The library in our head and in our heart can change and transform us, and it can change and transform the world. No matter what situation or circumstance is before you, no matter how dark the future seems, no matter how uncertain it seems, no matter what problem you face, no matter what mountain is before you, it is the library in your head and in your heart that will begin to birth all sorts of creativity, all sorts of solutions, all sorts of paths carved across the mountain that you could not see. And so what will that library be? This is why God invites us to eat this book. May your heart and your mind be full of the words of God, illuminating the path before you and filling you to overflowing. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing together.